Cairo, Seattle. It's time to get schooled with a professor, John Clayton. And welcome to Schooled with the Professor. And certainly, uh, in all my years of covering football, the strangest start to training camp I've ever experienced and anybody's ever experienced. I mean, you have opt-outs. You have uh, the players right now testing positive but coming back a lot quicker. You have collective bargaining adjustments that have been made that will have serious impacts on next year and serious impacts on teams as far as the opt-out. And joining us here on School with the Professor is uh, Andrew Beaton from the Wall Street Journal. And, Andrew, I guess the the big thing to start off with is that, uh, you know, we can get into the chances of this season happening, which I think actually look pretty good. But I wanted to get into the opt-outs because that is so unusual. And it's coming at such a fast pace because here it is. We're heading toward the deadline of Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you have 55-plus guys that have opted out, eight members of the New England Patriots, two wide receivers from the Miami Dolphins, starting defensive tackle, star little lady from the Buffalo Bills. The AFC East has been really crushed so far in what's happening with the opt-outs. Without a doubt, and it's going to be super interesting to see just how much it affects every one of these teams because coaches like Bill Belichick have often been the biggest uh, advocates of the next man up philosophy and that they tout that, and it's really going to be put to the test in a way that we have never seen before. And it's really interesting when you look at the different cases on an individual basis with each team. You look at players with the Patriots and read more about the concerns they're facing, maybe with its newborn children or at-risk family members. And you also start thinking about it from the context of, all right, some of these guys, like a Hightower, like a Cannon, these are guys who have won Super Bowls. They are guys who have made a lot in their career, and they can be looking at it and looking at their own personal situations and saying, you know what, the it isn't right for me to go back to work right now. And the question will become for these teams, how successfully can they replace them? What I'm wondering about right now is the roster impact and how many games it's going to cost. Because certainly, uh, you know, you lose Tom Brady, you figure the 12 win seasons right now, that's out the door for a year or so. Then you come back and you lose, you know, five key guys in free agency. You trade uh, during Harmon, a safety. That's six key guys, uh, including now the team's down as top four linebackers. Uh, then you add to the fact, in fact, in fact, let's go to this. Uh, what, how, with the, Addition of Cam Newton, where did you have this with all the losses in free agency and trades? Where do you have the Patriots for wins? I mean, I still had, still had them in that 10-win range because you could look at how much they've lost, but they still have arguably the game's best cornerback and the game's best head coach. And you're looking at a team and saying, you know what, maybe you put them in a different division and it can become a different calculation, but there are still a lot of question marks surrounding – being the New York Jets. There's still question marks despite a strong season last year with Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. There's a lot of reason to believe in the long-term future with the Miami Dolphins and what they're building there, but I don't think most people see that team as being ready to win now. So it's almost by a process of elimination that you can still see them winning a lot of games, even despite the opt-outs, despite losing Tom Brady, despite Gronk moving his party down to Tampa Bay with it. It's just almost by defaulting to the one thing you know, which is that you think a Bill Belichick football team is going to win a bunch of games. And with so much uncertainty elsewhere in the division, I fall back on thinking, you know what, they, they still have a chance to, to win 10-11 football games. 
But see, here's what I'm wondering about. Okay, that's that's before the opt-outs. But now you take away four guys you know, that I guess you could say are core guys because they've been through the Super Bowls together. You know, led by Dante Hightower. You know, him you know, opting out. Then you know Marcus Cannon, understandably because his high-risk condition, having been uh, suffering through the right tackle, he's gone. Patrick Chung, a vital part of the secondary at safety, and then Brandon Bolden, who's been a you know kind of a off and on dependable backup running back. I mean, you take those four guys along with Dan Vitale and Matt Castle and all that. I think doesn't that have to drop them now to about a seven or eight win team unless Cam Newton really steps up big time? Yeah, it definitely requires a lot of faith. But I think the one thing that I keep thinking back to is when I put them next to the the other teams in their own division who they're going to play six games against, you just look at it and say, do you think they can still beat the Jets? They're another team that lost a lot when they lost Mosley, someone who they're counting back on counting on to come back and really anchor a defense, especially after they traded Jamal Adams. You look at the Dolphins, the team that the Patriots have had notorious trouble with when they go down to Miami in recent years. But again, this is a team that you still think the Patriots can beat twice. And then so then it really feels like whether it's them or the Bills, but while we're sitting here wondering what Cam Newton would look like in a New England Patriot uniform. And I still don't think it is a 100% guarantee he gets that starting job. And so while we have that big question mark, you could say it's a pretty similar question mark with Josh Allen and Buffalo because while they had such a strong season last year, there were times when you just looked at that offense and said, all right, is this really sustainable? Is this something that can really carry over and improve that much? Because it needs to for, it to, for that team to take the leap. What I thought was so curious, though, with all the losses that they had, you know, they really didn't. I mean, of course, I know the cap situation, which changed dramatically. You know, they got their draft choices done. There were a million dollars or less under the cap. and uh, But all they did was basically sign one-year contracts with guys. And most of those guys were either backups or special teams. I mean, the only two-year deal that they – well, they got maybe two two-year deals in Bo Allen and then also Adrian Phillips at safety. <clears throat> but everything else was either one-year – Deals and then Dan Vitale he opts out. Marquise Lee he mark opts out, and it's like they haven't really added much except the draft. And then you look at the team and you say, wait a second, you know, on a year where you don't have uh, off-season uh, workouts or anything like that, the, most of the rookies are going to end up playing a lot. Oh, for sure. And I think the what also makes the Patriots such an interesting microcosm of what we're looking at across the league here with these opt-outs is, you know, we haven't seen Patrick Mahomes opt-out. We haven't seen Lamar Jackson opt-out. We haven't really seen any single individual player that you're like, you know what, this one guy opting out is going to dramatically affect the team's win total. But when you're looking at the Broncos' offensive line this year, you're going to be wondering how James opting out has affected things. Or when you're watching the Patriots' defense, or the Patriots offensive line, you're really going to be wondering about this. So even if it isn't one individual player that's dramatically changing one team's calculus or forecast, the sum of all of it could actually really change the way this season looks at looks like when we're looking back on it in January. 
But to, to your point, uh, you can also see that with the losses around the division, you know, that kind of balances it a little bit. I mean, normally the Patriots go into the season figuring they're going to win five division games. They tend to somehow lose that uh, road trip down to Miami. But now you look at the Jets, they lose a $17 million linebacker in C.J. Mosley with an opt-out. You know, they traded away Jamal Adams, so they're not going to be as good on defense. And then, you know, Star Luda lately taken out, not that he's a great player, but still a, a starting defensive tackle gone that has to hurt uh you know two wide receivers albert wilson going in miami and alan hearns you know that takes away about 70 some receptions from their team and they're going to be in a desperate spot to find wide receivers so to your point i mean they still have a chance to go four and two and maybe five and one yeah and i think the really big question mark that you could say could really change the calculations in this division is josh allen right if he can really emerge he has a huge new weapon in Stephon Diggs. All of a sudden, if he can be the quarterback that they want him to be, then the, this division looks really different. If the Bills can beat the Patriots twice, you're saying, all right, we're crying them the AFC's champions. But if he doesn't take that leap, you don't really have much faith that he'll be better, that this team will be better at quarterback than whoever New England puts back there because he was so inconsistent at times. And one of the interesting things to look at is basically what I think a lot of our conversation is leading towards is that are you that shocked if an 8-8 eight eight team wins the AFC East this year, 9-7? and seven? I don't think it would be altogether that stunning because when you look at all of the losses around the division, all right, someone has to win when, these, when two teams in the division play each other, but when they go outside the division, it could be kind of tough sledding for all of these teams. What I think is going to be fascinating uh, is going to be you know what's, what's happened to the Patriots' cap because – I mean, they were pretty well capped out, and then all of a sudden with the opt-outs, they're now sitting with, like, uh, among the top three for cap room not only this year, but even with the opt-outs moving into next year. I mean, they're they're in a good spot next year with uh, more money than, like, about 30 other teams to be able to, to make moves, re-sign guys, uh, bring in players. And, you know, not that that's a big thing that they've liked to do, but uh, now next year, cap-wise, they're in an incredible spot when everybody else, for the most part in the league, isn't. Yeah, for sure, and that really leads into something you had mentioned at the start, which is that all of these collective bargaining negotiations and uncertainty that the league and each team individually faces during this pandemic, one of the big consequences of that that they have all been looking at is what the cap implications look like for 2021 and beyond, because salary cap is tied to revenue, and when you're looking at revenue down, both sides, the players in the league, were looking at the certainty that the salary cap could crater. And so part of that deal was setting a floor at $175 million so it doesn't go down more than that. But every team, if it, when they've been building their rosters around the idea that the cap will continually go up, if it goes down to a number like 175 that presents a lot of tough decisions. So saving money actually presents teams an unusual amount of flexibility that their opponents might not have when they're thinking about re-signing guys, when they're thinking about free agency in a market that will look undoubtedly different come next offseason. Yeah, well, I think there's going to be such a dramatic change. It's not necessarily going to be in the AFC because in the AFC you have as many as, you know, nine to 11 quarterbacks that are still in their rookie contracts, which also, you know, gives them the chance to build. So that gives them cap room. But the big change is going to come in the NFC because you can look at, you know, five, five of the six playoff teams from last year all could have major casualties with a 175 cap. 
you know, 175 million because, you know, Philadelphia is $80 million over the cap. And so uh, you can see New Orleans, this is probably their last playoff year uh, because, you know, I don't know if Drew Brees is going to be back or not, but even if he's not back, he's going to eat up like about $25 million of dead money. And if you have, you know, 21% of your cap and dead money, you're pretty well dead as a playoff team. Then you look at, uh, you know, Green Bay, they're going to be tight. They started to show it a little bit this year because, you know, all they did in free agency, they got Devin Funches, who opted out at $2.5 million, And basically, they took a right tackle, Ricky Wagner, and they took a uh, linebacker in Christian Kirksey and signed them for half of what the uh, departing Green Bay Packers did. So they're going to be in, in trouble. San Francisco, they face a monster uh, list of free agents over 20, including George Kittle and their top three cornerbacks. The only team in the made the playoffs last year that's okay because they got $13 million of cap room next year at the moment is Seattle. And it's going to be really, really interesting to see the, how all those front offices address those various questions. And it will be a fascinating window into how those executives look at building a roster under conditions that they never expected to face because they can go different roads in that some teams might prioritize paying a few high-end guys and then trying to build out the rest of the roster as cheaply as they can and believing themselves to find value where other general managers and executives is, might not see that same value and think, you know what, we can build a productive roster on minimum deals and build out around our stars that way. There are other teams that might look at it and say, you know what, we can't afford to pay a few guys $20 million a year right now, given this cap situation, and we think we really need to invest in our middle class and give up on one or two really high-end players that they might otherwise dream of having. And so it'll be an off-season where every executive is facing different sorts of questions, but it'll be a really interesting window for every fan into how these GMs are going to prioritize in a situation that they never thought they would have to face. Yeah, and that's the thing I think uh, people kind of miss on, you know, because obviously, uh, you know, we all love the NFL just because it gives such great news year round, day by day, all through the offseason with signings and everything else. But, uh, you know, this year was probably the worst year for high end signings if you exclude the cornerback or the quarterbacks, because, you know, the highest paid unrestricted free agent was basically uh, Byron Jones going to Miami at $16.5 million a year. And then I counted up. Maybe there was about uh, less than 10 guys that went to teams that uh, got $13 million or more between the 13 and the 16.5 to a point that's like, okay, uh, you know, most of the playoff teams didn't get involved in that, particularly the NFC teams, other than, say, maybe Philadelphia, because they traded for Darius Slay and paid him 16 plus million. And then they went and got uh, Javon Hargraves, uh, Hargrave, who ended up getting 13. But, you know, teams kind of shied away from free agency this year. And what might be the even ruder awakening is what the free agent market could look like next year because when the cap faces this very real possibility of going down, every player who hits the market, it's not as if they're going to hit the market and if they think they're a really talented guy. There aren't going to be tons of teams flush with cap space the way we've seen in some recent years who might be willing to dole out, out decent contracts they might all be facing the situation of 
there are just aren't simply that many dollars on the table. And so they could be hitting a market where they know they're worth more. They know that in a different year they would get more money. But all of a sudden, when teams have, might have to be cutting guys, restructuring contracts, if you're hitting the open market, it might be just take that first deal you see because otherwise the well might run dry faster than ever. Yeah, and of course, I mean, the one thing that uh, we experienced in 2012, which was the last flat cap, and we're not talking about a cap that was uh, 20, you know, just a flat cap of, you know, going up like $300,000. And so what ended up happening, the franchise tags went down because it's tied to the cap. They went down an average of 20%. And so now what you'll see, because there was over 20 guys that got franchised or transitioned, I can see two dozen players and two dozen teams right now doing franchise tags, particularly on that young running back class that uh, was set up on a good one in 2017. I mean, you're going to have at least five or six running backs are going to be franchised because if the cap is going to be around 175, that's, those prices are going to be down 30%. So a $10.2 million running back at a franchise tag may be available for under eight. Yeah, and at the same time, $8 million in that type of environment could look like a lot of money for a running back. And again, it's going to be what these general managers value. And in a situation when they've never had to pinch pennies in this type of way, because all of a sudden, those, some of those running backs in this class that we're looking at, they could look like extraordinary value at that sheet. At the same time, that's $8 million that they can look at and saying, you know, I need that to improve our secondary. I need that to improve our pass rush. I need that to improve our offensive line, especially in the day and age when we're looking at teams saying, you know, we've, some teams say we feel more confident that we can get pr- production out of the running back position on the cheap. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that that will be right when you have some super talented players who could potentially hit the market. But even at a cheaper rate, these, these decisions won't be easy. Forbes magazine projected there's going to be, if there's no fans in the stands, $5.5 billion loss in revenue. Uh, the Players Association is saying that number is going to be between 3 and $3.5 billion. What does the Wall Street Journal kind of project as far as the revenue losses uh, for this season? Well, I can't say we have crunched our own numbers on this. Well, the one thing that I have heard is that, first of all, there's so much uncertainty into so many different things. For example, we've seen teams such as the Jets and Giants say they're preparing to play without fans. We've seen other organizations say that they're planning for limited attendance. And that has will have a big impact. That's sort of where this range can fluctuate based on what happens there, I mean, we're also looking at, say, what has happened in Major League Baseball, and it wouldn't be altogether stunning if an NFL game has to be canceled this season because of a similar circumstance. But we've heard upwards of $4 billion. I mean, and that wouldn't be surprising at all, just given the world we're in, the economy we're in, and the uncertainty facing the sport, that even if the season goes off, could it be over four? Absolutely. I, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, colleges kind of <clears throat> address that because one of the things that the NFL probably would have done, now is going to have a hard time doing, was going to be if there's no college games on a Saturday, 
flex maybe two games. You know, you can probably get in streaming lines like about you know 65 million a game, if not more, for a Saturday uh, game that's going to be. But you know, the Big Ten came out on Wednesday, announced their schedule, and so they kind of blocked everything because they started September 3rd. You know, the ACC starts about what two weeks later, and then you know you have at the end of the month you know the Pac-12 and the SEC. Uh, so it looks like they've tried to make sure that they could you know, preserve their TV entities uh, and not lose it to the NFL on a Saturday. And I think the one thing that's so difficult to project there is that we're looking at these college schedules coming out, but none of them feel solid in any way. I mean, we're close to the season, sure, but we're also looking at a world where students don't really know what their campuses are going to look like and whether or not it's really feasible for these schools to be pulling off playing college sports at a time when there is so much tension over the athletes should get paid and the questions surrounding the safety of them in that environment. And so the question will be whether or not this season even pops off the way the colleges plan and how that could factor into the NFL's plans. Because I think one of the things we've learned over the last several months of this pandemic is that it's so difficult to project what next week is going to look like, not to mention next month or three months from now. So I think the one thing to be sure of is that all of these plans will probably change in some form, whether that is the NFLs, whether it's colleges, whether it's both, because unexpected things are going to arise, whether that is things taking a turn for the better, for the worse, or staying the same, but just unexpected circumstances that pop up within those different possibilities okay so what uh, what do you have for the wall street journal that, that everybody can kind of keep following because again interesting times in all sports but also in football well one of the things that uh we wrote about today was just this interesting phenomenon where training camp is going to look very different this year which is there's this longer ramp up where full padded practices are limited and aren't starting until the middle of August. And that's always been a real scourge for coaches who have always said the best way to practice is getting guys hitting each other and training for football the way football has often been trained for. But one of the interesting lessons, I think, is looking at what Dartmouth has done over the last decade where they've become a real Ivy League powerhouse after eliminating full contact practice. And they realized that if they focused on their players' health and they focused on things like technique, they can actually be better players on game day by being healthier players and I think it'll be interesting to look at whether that sort of becomes a model for teams looking at how to train effectively during these unprecedented times this a training camp like never before and whether those adapting some of the same mindsets can be an effective tool for NFL teams to get ready when they have to get ready in a way they never have before Andrew Beaton thank you for your knowledge and joining us here on Schooled with the Professor it's a pleasure thank you so much for having me And that does it for this week's podcast. In between episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at Clayton ESPN. If you enjoy these weekly one-on-one conversations, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Schooled with a Professor. 